second official meeting, finally, of the Deleuze and Deland uh, um, reading group. Um, yeah, message me if you're having trouble unmuting yourselves, but you should all be able to right now. Um, so, yeah. We uh, were looking at this article... Deleuze diagrams and the genesis of form. Um, <clears throat> so we have briefly looked at like some of the uh, kind of thermodynamics and physicsy examples that I highlighted on this a uh, couple weeks ago, but uh, didn't really get too far into this whole uh, paper before. Um, So, uh, yeah, what does, what do people who read this think, uh, think about it? What did you learn from this? And, uh, if nobody else wants to talk, I can ramble. I've got a bunch of notes here, but, um, I figure I should open the floor up first and also look at my notes because it's been a little while since uh, I read this. Yeah, it's been a while since I read it as well. Uh, I guess the, the most interesting thing about it is the uh, generalization of the idea of the diagram. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of abstract diagram. Yeah, when I think of diagrams, I think of, you know, diagrams that I create about philosophy. You know, I mean, specific diagrams that portray concepts and their relations to each other. And right. so... Actual visual, yeah, figures. Yeah, so thinking about diagrams as something that is kind of like, in a way, physical, and is a, in a way the the um, the different. I mean, I'm, this is just a portrayal, but the different kind of concepts jostling among each other to get some kind of organization, rather than an organization that's imposed upon it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is uh you know i mean that's that's a uh, a new thought for me and then just then just generalizing that out to nature saying that diagrams are things that are produced in nature generally mm -hmm. um So I noted it, yeah, in the second paragraph was where the first sentence there, there are several differences between um, these approaches, which she's referring to in the first paragraph, uh, some recent AI and cognitive uh, science approaches uh, based on uh, diagrammatic representations. Um, and this was writing in like the early 90s. Um, so yeah, several differences between these approaches to the question of diagrams and the one advocated by Gilles Deleuze, the least important of which is that for Deleuze, diagrams have no intrinsic connection with visual representations. And yeah, exactly. Like when I first read that, I was like, I don't know what the heck that means. A diagram that is not a visual representation of something. So, so you, you've seen like some of the language in, uh, in ontologies, right? Like OWL and stuff like this. Are you, do you know that kind of work? that uh, people and geomatics and, you know, physics, uh, they use? Um, not really. 
So yeah. What was that, what was that word that you used? O W L. It's a type of uh, a language. Um, so basically, and when, when I was working with uh, with people in geomatics, that was the big uh, a big crux of our um, of our misunderstandings. And when they were talking about ontologies, they were talking about concept mapping. So basically, they use um, some tools to actually place the concept in relation to other concepts. And they go and they identify the properties of each concept, and then they can tie the relation and they can qualify the relationship between the concepts. But uh, Deleuze doesn't mean it that way. So basically, when we're talking about uh, ontology or diagrams, we're talking about two complete different things. So I think that's this way that he's, uh, he's introducing the whole uh, idea of the diagram. What does OGL stand for? OWL. OWL? Oh, Al. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, so it's it's called Web Ontology Language, but there was sure. other language before that because this one started in 2004, and this paper is in 2000, so it was probably like a previous... Um, tool that they were referring to. Right, right, yeah. yeah it's, like, that, it's like concept mapping. You you probably use that into another project. But uh, the diagram is not that. The diagram is not this kind of transcendent uh, representation that can be visualized. You know, it's something that is more contingent, situational, that concepts and things are connected and are, are connecting themselves to one another. And they have emergent properties because of that. Right. Well, maybe I'm going too fast. But... <laughs> I, I, I tend I tend to relate it to uh, Prigogine and dissipative structures. And so Prigogine just you know I mean he you know it's this whole thing of uh, negative entropy where um, he studied different kinds of chemical reactions that produce order. Uh, autonomously as self-organizing and uh, and so if you think of the diagrams as being that order that's being produced self in a self-organizing way one of the interesting things about that is that in a um, in Prigogine dissipative structure um, the the basic schema is that there's a there's a boundary with the environment and the dissipative structure is turning the environment into itself and as it does that it imposes order on it but then there's the question of where does that order come from and it's almost as if there's a singularity <clears throat> at the heart of the dissipative structure and the order is flowing in from that singularity so if if we take this for example uh, to to make sure we all understand, um, the, the pre-given is not the environment. The environment is the result of this assemblage of matters. So because the way we see it, we see you know the template before the things. But I think that using this example, you know the things and the diagram are there previously to the overall organization or the template. The template would be given 
you know, after. Uh, but they themselves are going to have some history, right, and be formed through some process. Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, it's an ongoing thing, you know. So, mm. so, so, so I think we're <clears throat> having some semantic difficulties. So, when you say in given to the environment, you know, the environment that I would relate that to is internal to the dissipative structure. Okay, yes, in that manner, yes, because the, what I was saying is that, you know, we always have the idea of an environment as something that is already organized or already there. Right. Yeah, the idea of a dissipative structure requires a sort of reservoir for things to dissipate into that we are kind of counting as the ground that uh, we can't uh, tell the difference when, you know, absorbs another uh, quanta of energy or something. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a little bit like room cleaning that we need to do at the beginning to understand fully what they meant. So yeah, I, I I I must admit I I'm kind of fascinated by this idea of the dissipative structure, the way Prigogine uh, uh, portrays it because. You know, I mean, there's the, his the, there's his theory, and then there's trying to understand what's happening. And uh, I mean, I think the way to maybe tie it in here is that dissipative structure arises because it solves some problem, right? Uh, yeah, it solves some problem of the way that energy is going to flow through a system given uh, a particular uh, initial. Preparation, see, something like that. But see, like in that sentence that you read, you know, to me, this is like the key point in Prigogine, but Prigogine doesn't talk about it uh, directly, which is that the diagram is the invisible ordering template or paradigm mm -hmm. that, that that is like flowing in from a singularity in the middle of it, from the in the in in the in the middle of the dissipative structure and and organizing within the dissipative structure as it expands and transforms its environment into itself you know there's there's like like in a dissipative structure there's a constant flow of order into that system that is the negative entropy and and it's a very specific kind of order and i just like to mention <laughs> that um, in Chinese in Chinese philosophy there is a concept exactly like this which is called Li and uh, Li is like uh, has two meanings one is pattern and the other is the principle upon which that pattern is made which is invisible and so I, I, you know, when you read that sentence about diagrams being invisible, you know, it seems like what they're talking about is something like that, that principle, which is the basis of the order that then becomes this pattern that is uh, growing and, and replicated within the dissipative structure. Kind of like how... Um... Einstein said that, you know, thermodynamics was perhaps the most secure of all the physical sciences in terms of its universal applicability. It's sort of this kind of imminent uh, structure that uh, 
just emerges from nature. Yeah, and then and then what they were having a hard time with was figuring out well where does life come from in an organization where thermodynamics is the rule. Mm-hmm. And then Prigogine came up with the idea that um, okay, uh, even though entropy is maintained globally, that in a far from equilibrium system, you can get these local pockets of ordering. Mm-hmm. And um, and so and, and it doesn't violate the, the thermodynamic laws, but it uh, uh, um, but it allows for. And then he found. The, the and not only here. does it not violate the thermodynamic laws, it it shows us how we can get this kind of uh, structure. Well, exactly this multiplicity of structures and flows between them that are kind of self-organizing. Uh, yeah, in a way, 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 we're talking about kind of the heart of anti-Oedipus here, because remember that in anti-Oedipus, there was this statement that desire upwells in the midst of the desiring machines. Mm-hmm. And so this this is kind of like that desire upwelling, you know, because the production of order the production of order is temporally asymmetrical, mm-hmm. and so the order is flowing into the system. That's like the desire upwelling. Although I think right, we would probably have to. Well, is there some balance between order and something else, or are we kind of at this very um, almost physical science level just thinking about order? Well, the, or- the you know the opposite of the order is the randomness, right? Which Deleuze is obsessed with. Right. So he has this very strange idea that. Um, Like, for instance, um, you know, when you're rolling the dice, that each, you know, going back to Nietzsche. Reaffirm the uh, commitment, right? Right. That that the the single roll of the the dice is a, you know, it's what uh, Nietzsche calls amor fate, you know, loving the fate. And that if you keep rolling the dice, you know, that's that's kind of like this. What do you call it? uh, Takes away from that, you know, kind of turns that into a nihilistic thing. Whereas if you just stick with I'm going to roll the dice once and put everything on that dice roll. As people do when they're playing, you know, dice games. because everything's riding on this single roll of the dice. I'm either going to win or lose based on that. But Deleuze is obsessed with that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so, shall we try to uh, get back to uh, the text of this uh, essay and go through this form? Sure. Um, so, we've got this idea that diagrams kind of represent problem solving and they can be either 
literal visual diagrams on a piece of paper that we use to aid our problem solving uh, practices, or they can be this more abstract notion of natural systems and social systems, um, having these kind of emergent problems that must be solved within them and how these give rise to uh, solutions to these problems are new things. Um, and so, yeah, this third paragraph is where we get into the question of the existence of these problems, what that means ontologically. Um, I'll admit I'm still a little, I don't know, uncomfortable with anti-essentialist ontology here. Uh, it's hard for me to not kind of just slip some sort of on some sort of essence in there. Uh, even if it's like a kind of relational, you know, meta essence or something like that, I don't have any problem calling that the essence. Um, but I don't know if that is somehow not doing justice to the anti-essence uh, philosophy of Deleuze. I think I think this is going back to the key point that Deleuze makes in difference in repetition is the relationship between representation and non-representational. Because he he's kind of saying that the essence of these diagrams are non-representational, but then they uh, result in representations. Kind of like the the Lee as principle turning into the Lee as pattern, and that that's that's that, that's where that's where the the, the that's the, kind of I think related to uh, Dillas and Guattari's uh, process of production of production and the uh, recording falling back onto that process, right? Yeah, I think so because the when you think about it, the um, The whole idea of essence is that you know what the structure of the thing is prior to the thing. Right. You can kind of see its <clears throat> structure from the outside. Yeah. And before so you encounter it. Well, it's given in some kind of platonic heaven. Mm -hmm. And so right. you can you can you know you can have a, a what Husserl calls essence perception, where you can just see the essence directly. Yeah, with and, your third eye. <laughs> and, yeah, and they they and and so this is this is kind of against that. This is saying that, uh, you know, the the instead of the essence, you have some kind of principle, which is the kind of like uh, rolled up and enfolded uh, form of the of 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 the dynamic. Right. And then when so here, can I can I explain what you're saying in terms of one of the uh, examples that Delanda gives, which is the soap bubble sure. here? Sure. So yeah, the dynamic is the uh, <clears throat> process by which this system of a bunch of soap 
fluid molecules in a fluid state uh, surrounded by some, uh, you know, vacuum. They have to find a shape that minimizes the energy caused by the surface tension of, uh, you know, the film. And so that just happens to be a sphere. And so the process gives rise to the soap bubble. And there is no, as Delanda puts it, no essence of soap bubbleness somehow imposing itself from the outside in ideal geometric form, a sphere shaping an inert collection of molecules, rather an endogenous topological form. And here they say the form is a point, and that's because this is this um, equilibrium point, right? The fact that the shape is attracted to this final, almost ideal spherical right. point in its configuration space. So that is the point in the space of energetic possibilities, which is representing the final topological form, which... So equilibrium, nothing's happening. There's just a point. It's just taking some shape finally, settled down. Yeah, that that that's what I was calling the singularity at that point. Yeah, right, exactly. So 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 you can kind of think of it as there's this enfolded um uh dynamic relationship between possibilities. And then, and then somehow, in the dynamic of the dissipative structure unfolding, that 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 causes that unfolding of the order that's replicated in the dissipative structure. Right. And there's no essence. And that that's a really hard thing because the whole history of philosophy is built around the idea that there's essences. It's basically saying that you're only going to know that principle when it actually manifests. You're not going to know it prior to the manifestation. Um, yeah. So, speaking of things like prior uh, in the... Uh, Kind of middle of the second column there, there's the reference to uh, Bergson. Um, so, Delanda kind of summarizes the saying, Bergson wrote a series of texts where he criticized the inability of the science of his time to think the new, the truly novel. And uh, one of the issues that Bergson saw was this... Uh, mechanical linear view of causality and time. Um, so I'm not, I haven't read Bergson yet. Uh, do you, Kent or Jan have anything uh, relevant about Bergson to add here? Off the bat like this, no. <laughs> no. So Bergson came up with the idea of the virtual. Mm. And Deleuze has um, appropriated that. And so in Bergsonism, there's four different modalities. There's uh, the virtual, and then the actual, and then the real, and then the uh, possible. And so 
Um, so there's this this kind of like double movement where the uh, the possible becomes real and the virtual becomes actual. But but the way he portrays it is like a cycle. So the cycle is goes from virtuality to actuality to reality to possibility. That gives rise to new virtualities. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's and a cycle. That's and did Liz uh, also uh, use this cyclic stru- structure? He implies it. Okay. But he, he doesn't. He just kind of like says um, there's these different modalities, and usually he's only interested in a pair of them at a time. So you'll notice in his books that he'll talk about like reality and possibility, or he'll talk about virtuality and actuality, or he'll talk about actuality and reality. You know, he he doesn't really, you know, even though he presents it as, well, there's these four modes and they can, I, 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 can't, I think I'm reading into the fact, reading into the idea of it being cyclical. Okay. Okay. But but, but 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 this this yeah. the the enfolded principle is the virtu- is virtuality is in the virtuality space. May I pose a question to uh, yeah, you guys? Or is, or is this more structured? May um nope. May this I is totally free form. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. Um. So I haven't read Bergson, but I have a friend, a close friend, who does read a lot of him, and uh. I've found some resonance between uh, his idea of the virtual and um, this book I'm reading by Ilya Prigogine, who Delanda also brings up. Is are you guys uh, in uh, familiar with Il- Ilya Prigogine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, like this idea of the thermodynamic system of the universe as opposed to the mechanical. So mm-hmm. um, it's kind of like this counter argument to uh, a counter argument for like the determinism of a. Uh, of like materialism because it's kind of like yeah. a specter haunting materialism is that it's uh, seen as a very deterministic system. Yeah. Um, uh, so first of all, which uh, Brigadine book are you talking about? Is this uh, the end of uncertainty or uh, order out of chaos? It's the only Brigadine book that I've read. Oh, Brigadine and Sanger. Yeah. Gotcha. Yes. Yes. Um. <clears throat> is there some resonance there, or am I? Am I going off on the wrong on the wrong path here? No, I think you're right. I think that's kind of what we're saying is that like the thermodynamics, these sort of imminent and universal uh, emergent behaviors of uh, matter, these are the virtualities, the potentialities that always are existing uh, sort of um, what's the phrase he uses that the the uh, past and preg- present are pregnant with these virtualities, which will become actual. And so I wanted to talk about my understanding of the difference between virtualities becoming actual and possibilities becoming real. And for me, I base this in um, my understanding of like Leibniz and uh, the um, you know, many different uh, worlds that he considers and how we're living the best of all possible worlds. 
So like right now, there are all these other possible worlds that could have been actualized that weren't actualized. And so those are the possible or the things that didn't get actualized but could have been. And sometimes we don't know exactly which was actualized and which wasn't. So we do have to consider the possibilities. We don't have a certainty. Um, does that ring true with other people's understanding? I, I feel like there's a specific word that Deleuze and Guattari use, as well as uh, Ilya Prigogine uses, is this idea mm -hmm. of bifurcations, bifurcations mm -hmm. of reality, where it's, um, it's when it's that precise moment, like a singularity, right? Like uh, where something happens, something actualizes. And, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like where the yeah. bit flips from zero to one. Yes. Yeah. Or it has to choose one of those two options, right? More likely. Um, uh, I just dropped in for, uh, relatively recently, and I heard you guys talk for a bit. Um, is there a text that you guys are? Um... Oh yeah, we're talking about. Um, if you go to the Deleuze and Delanda channel under the um, collective discussion categories, the uh, first couple of posts in there are the uh, text that we're discussing today. All right. All right. Uh, I'll brush up on that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that way of um, talking about the difference between the possible and uh, the virtual, did that make sense to folks? It did to me, yeah. Uh -huh. Uh, related to this topic, um, I would like to ask. Um, this is a this uh, personally, this is something that has been a bit of a stumbling block in my understand in my understanding of Delanda's interpretation of Deleuze is uh, his idea of topological thinking and phase space. Is uh, mm -hmm. I can get it in concept, but I can't quite ground it into what it actually means to think topologically. Um, can somebody speak it, uh, speak a bit about that? I can, yeah, try to explain what I understand, although uh, if you had a particular example of a thing he says that you don't understand, that could be helpful too, but... Um, well, I think I, as, we go I through the as we go through the text, we're going to be talking about that. Yeah. So, uh, Cactus... Oh, I'm, I'm, sorry if I'm, I'm sorry if I'm distracting you guys. No, it's cool. We can we, we've only talked about it once so far, so it would be a good point to review this right now, uh, which is that, like... The fact that um, when you have emergence and when you have universal uh, behaviors, right, these are uh, phenomena that you see emerging in many different systems that are similar in some ways, but not the same. Um, so there has to be some principle that kind of uh, filters all these different um, possibilities uh, and says, oh, we can't tell the difference between these anymore. They've all given rise to this same final structure, uh, that there's a sort of equivalence of all those things. And that's where you get topology coming in. It's not their exact size that matters. It's not how, um, yeah, it's not the exact size. It's not the exact rigid structure it's the shape of it. it doesn't matter whether it's a square or a triangle or a circle it's the fact that it's all one line connecting back up to itself 
that matters. This is related to the non-Euclidean geometry that he talks about in his book, right? This is a, uh, I'm not a sure. chapter called sure. the cartography. Um, it was the second to the last chapter, I believe, of his book. Are you talking about Delanda's book? Yes, Delanda's book on Deleuze. Okay, so yeah, we are just starting that. We've only read the uh, introduction so far. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, yeah. Yeah, don't let me uh, distract you guys. Just uh, tell me if I'm speaking out of turn or anything. Well, just to mention what topology is, uh, you know, I mean, the thing is that topology has to do with, uh, you know, lines and surfaces and spaces. But it's such that um, like like a square and a circle are the same thing from a topological perspective. Yeah, exactly. You can kind of think of it as floppy geometry where the shapes are allowed to bend and, uh, you know, stretch. As long as you don't break things, that's what uh, a sort of allowed topological um, transformation, you know, a way of demonstrating that two things are equivalent is if you can uh, just reshape one into the other without breaking it. And so when we're talking about that principle, you know, kind of the Lee as principle, uh, that, that, that's some kind of nexus in a topological space. It's not a representation. A representation is when you, you know, you have the figure and it matters what, what the, uh, the, the, what do you call it? The, uh, you know, like you have the square rather than the circle and it matters. That's like a representation. But the, but when you, when you go back to topology, then it's only the the uh, constraint of the topological spaces as it folds through itself that matters. Right. So the way it works in terms of the actual like formal mathematics is you do still represent things. It's just that your choice of representative among a certain class doesn't matter. They're all equivalent ways of representing the uh, same thing. I believe I have a grasp on, I'm sorry, can you, uh, did you have a point to say? No, go ahead. Okay, I I believe I grasp topology in in its uh, formal sense, but I can't quite ground its relevance to the overall project. So the topology is the fact that your final um, the phenomenal form of the system is going to have some sort of essential topological shape. It will be either a point, as in there's only a single final state that it's going to be uh, equilibrating to, or maybe it will be um, three points and it'll hop from one point to the other in a sort of periodic cycle, but a discrete one, or maybe there'll be uh, curves in phase space, right? And so this is phase space where you are uh, graphing both the position and the momentum or the uh, velocity of um, whatever your system is, the uh, constituents of your system. And um, so like you can have a a circle there where it's going around in a cycle. Yeah, go ahead. It's it's like uh it's like mapping the virtual, in a sense. Kind of. So like if you ever it is, seen... yeah, it's just kind of unfolding because like especially in quantum mechanics, like phase space isn't really well defined, right? You can't measure position and momentum at the same time. That's the uncertainty principle. So there is this kind of almost 
yeah, weird unfolding of the whole classical phase space structure somehow out of it. And uh, yeah, sorry, on you can continue. Uh, now, just a quick idea. If you want to have a vis uh, visual representation of it, um, you know, you, lo you look outside the window and you see, you know, for what I see, like grass, a lawn, trees, buildings and stuff. But the topology of it would to say it from a matrix point of view, you know, like, for example, when you you see sound waves on a, on a visual representation. So reality would be that sound wave, the, the potentiality that can be organized into the forms that you see. So that's just the under the under layer of it. I don't know if that makes sense for you. All right, all right. Um, I'm trying to digest that. Because it's about matter and uh, energy, matter and flux, more than form. Is this uh, related to like this idea of like uh, molecularities versus molarities? I think so, because the thing is that we're starting from the molecular structure without form, and then we are seeing how form arises in these um, morphogenetic processes, these problem-solving diagrammatic uh, processes, um, right? Yeah. But the, you know, it arises with a second question that we can like probably talk about it later. How does the Mahler or, you know, how does the form that has been created by the mesh working of the matter and the force actually reinscribes itself into the visual? Because, you know, if it's cyclical, if, if you create forms, you, if you actualize form, you transform the potentials of the virtual to be actualized. I mean, uh, I'm not sure if this is exactly what the same as what you're saying, but to me, a sort of similar, if not the same thing, is the question of, um, yeah, sort of like, um, like you were saying that the form doesn't really matter, but we always try to re represent things in terms of their form, and so there's sort of this kind of so it's like you need to put yeah. arbitrary form and uh, so, so in whether the, there is a so name in, or not for it, maybe. Yeah. So anything, what does matter? The identity or the processes? It comes back to that question all yeah. the time. Yeah. So anything. So I'm trying to, uh, for it, me, I'm trying to read this in terms of process. I think that's the way Deleuze is yeah. writing, because right? We, yeah. Because, you know, when I was talking about the concepts and the properties before, the concepts could be a thing also. Uh, if we try to go into uh, describing the properties of an object, we're stuck into the, the form, but the, 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 does it really matter the property of the object because it's always in relation with uh, like a bigger ecosystem or a bigger environment? Yeah. So basically it's always being produced. Right. So uh, it, it's, A fixed property is always just something that is changing more slowly than we can observe its change. Exactly. So, you know, that's why the example that I give, you know, if you have a landscape, the idea is not the landscape in itself with its form, but the processes that are producing it as you are watching the forms unfold. Mm 
I see, I see. So it's all about viewing things as just, uh, as a, as like, uh, like you guys said, like a process. It's a historic enti- it's a historical entity. It's always mm-hmm. in the middle of some something that's acting, that's, um, that's it's enacting. Yeah. So it's always something that is emerging. You know, there's always emerging forms, and what you see is the uh, meta um, stability of the form, a form that is stable now, that but that can change through time. So basically, you never the identity of a thing is is not essential. It's you know it's processual and it's uh, I don't know how to say this in English, but temporal. You know, it is in time, but is also subject to change. Mm-hmm. But the, but the thing is that the processes are playing out on on these topological surfaces. Yeah. So that's what I was saying earlier, because if if it plays on the topological structure, uh, the virtual is always shifting as the structure changes. Because the meshwork of it all is changing also. Don't know if I like I I reduce stuff too much, so you can uh, you can correct me it's as okay. I go. Thank, I I very much appreciate uh, all of your efforts to try to elucidate elucidate this uh, topic for me. Um, so I, I I have a I have a way of thinking about this um, that I just like to you know might make it clearer, might make it less clear, but let me just say it and then you know there's different kinds of mathematics. That we can associate with these, um, these you know, the, these these different modes, and uh, so like for instance, uh, actuality is like probability, and uh, the real is like determinant, you know, in the sense that calculus is determinant, um, and uh, and then possibilities are like fuzzy, fuzzy logic, fuzzy sets. And the virtual is like uh, propensities, and uh, uh, and 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 so the, I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, you know that so so it kind of goes you know determinant like in calculus, and then and then probabilistic that's actuality, right? And then and then um, then fuzzy. Uh, so this is something that so this is something that I thought about. You're kind of, are you going through like a kind of series of negations here? Well, no. What what I'm trying to do is say there are different kinds of math that exemplify okay. the properties of these different modes. Gotcha. And so if you if you think about the different kinds of math that have actually been developed, then it 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 renders the whole thing a lot more concrete. So, mm-hmm. so like, like in, uh, you know, uh, in the history of math, you know, when they got the calculus, um, you know, with, with, uh, you know, you, you could say exactly what the, the, uh, the path was that the arrow was taking from the bow to the target, you know, that there's an ideal limit that is the, the determinant path. Right. Right. But then but then when the when the when you're shooting arrows, you know, uh, with uh, archery, um, 
what you're really trying to do is to cluster the arrows hitting the target. And, and so even if you're not hitting the bullseye, you try to cluster those arrows as much as possible. But, but the, the, the arrows actually hitting the part of the, the, uh, the target, that's, that is uh, probabilistic. You know, it's not following the ideal path that would be determined by the limit in calculus. There right. is some there is some dispersion of the actualities, and you can only know that after the arrows have hit the target. Yeah, I think it's like super interesting the way that this, um, you know, more realistic understanding of the processes of nature emerged not really cohesively at all, but very piecemeal out of both thermodynamics and um, you know mechanics. Right, uh, but also math. But, but but what I'm saying is also in mathematics, people have right, right, and these, these different, different theories have different mathematical structures that they rely on. Yeah, so so just let me complete the idea, which yeah, is sorry. that that you know when you're shooting at the uh, the target, you have in mind the idea that there's an ideal path from your bow to the bullseye. You could call that a desire, maybe. Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm just talking about the math right now. Okay. So, so there's this ideal, there's this ideal path, but but when you actually shoot the arrows, they are uh, the when the arrows hit the target, those are actualities. You know, they, they those those actual um, arrows hit the target in specific places, and they're dispersed. Um, in a in a pattern across the target, some of them missing the target completely. Then, so the, so that's the probabilistic part, right? And then and then there's the uh, and then there's the fuzzy part, right? The difference between probabilities and fuzzy is that it's across multiple universes. You know, the 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 pattern is 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 kind of like smeared across multiple universes uh rather than just being in one universe and uh, and then there's the then there's a guy named Watanabe who developed something called propensity theory which is different from um fuzzy uh math and that zeta came up with and uh Watanabe's propensity theory says that you know, there's some internal propensities happening that is causing the dispersion of the uh, the actualities. Yeah. So what is the difference between like fuzzy logic and probabilistic logic? Is that like in probabilistic logic, we are taking all these multiple worlds and then uh, assigning like a number to each of them and adding them up. So we're giving it this like linear structure and we're not assuming that in the purely fuzzy formalism or something. Well, the way I understand it is that that so fuzzy is related to possibilities, right? Right. So, so you've got all these possible worlds, and like in the probabilistic framework, you've got all these different possible outcomes, and you only have a probability distribution over them. But what makes it probability probability versus fuzzy is my question. Well, okay. So so the the way I understand it is that the pro the uh, the probabilities the the actualities that occur are occurring in this world. But there are all these other possible worlds, and so the fuzzy uh, 
I think we're kind of getting into um, like the difference between frequent, frequentist and Bayesian interpretations of probability here. Uh, that yeah, like that, the Bayesian be... is within the world. It's talking about like our beliefs about what's going to happen versus the frequentist is like what, you know, things actually happen at different rates. So, um, sorry to interrupt, but uh, Freen has asked a question a little while ago. Ah, thanks. Asking, can we touch up the Landa's definition of emergence? And I think that if we dwell on that concept at this moment, we will find a way to solve our problem. <clears throat> so, first of all, where does Delanda define emergence in this text? Or do we want to jump to the uh, book now? Is that better defined there? Uh, in the intro, he says emergence at page 34, but it's, uh, you know, just cited like that. So I don't know if it's in the book or not. Uh, is this in the book or the article? I oh, know the article ends on page 34-ish or whatever. Yeah, so it's probably more in the book, I would say. Let me scan it. Let me scan it. 82 in the book, I think. Emergence of order. Uh, I've got way too many PDFs. <laughs> but he has, um, I'm looking over the internet. It's uh, Manuel Delenda Emergence. It's on Libris Woods. I can link it. And uh, they're talking about the concept yeah. of emergence. All right. I got the book here, yay. So, yeah. How do we want, how are we defining emergence here? I mean, we've been kind of talking about it. We've been talking about how these problematic structures, these abstracts and concrete diagrams um, are describing processes of emergent um, formation, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess the, the thing here is to define that word emergent that I just used. So I will I will just read this. Preen, if you want to unmute yourself and start talking, you're uh, yeah. Everybody you know, should uh, feel free to unmute yourselves. I uh, this, is, this is different from the other discussion. This is an open thing, and you can go if you want. So in this text here, they say uh, the origin of the modern concept of emergence can be traced to the middle 19th century, when realist philosophers first began pondering the deep the similarities between causality in the fields of physics and chemistry. Classical example of causality in physics is a collision between two molecules or other rigid objects. Even in the case of several colliding molecules, the overall effect is a simple addition. 
if, for example, one molecule is hit by a second one in one direction and by a third one in a different direction, the composite effect will be the same as the sum of the two separate effects. The first molecule will end up in the same final position if the others two it, it simultaneously or if one collision happens before the other. In short, in these causal interactions, there are no surprises. Nothing is produced over and above what is already there. But when two molecules interact chemically, chemically, an entire new entity may emerge, as when hydrogen and oxygen interact to form water. Water has properties that are not possessed by its component parts. Oxygen and hydrogen are gases at room temperature, while water is liquid. You know, and he goes on with that uh, with that example. So the the and then. Uh, I'll, I'll let you go and I'll find like something more uh, that we can work on yeah. into this because I, mean, I just to me, to me it's a really tricky point because what emergence is trying to get at is like where the qualitative change occurs, right? Yeah, I think so. And that is to me a very uh, <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> Anxiety-provoking um, concepts, proposition. Like for instance, uh, you know, uh, there's this idea of the critical point where something changes phase. Yes. In matter. Yep. And so the the new phase, like going from water to ice, can be considered an emergent because the the uh, the, the the structure of the water molecules changes completely. Right. Um, in the in the transition from water to ice and the, and the other thing but but see then there's the deeper thing that uh, if you put uh you know hydrogen and oxygen together to create water that's right right h2o yeah yep. so so that the fact that we get water out of that and the properties of water is completely no one. There's no way to know from hydrogen and oxygen that you're going to get water. Yeah. So that's that's the deeper meaning of emergence. Um, was someone else about to uh, say something? Mendrio? I just have I just have a specific example of emergence that I find yeah. very intriguing. Like this, uh, the idea of the egg, and how um, from these, from just co this complex soup of uh, proteins and what what have you, like it develops into something with structure, and then becomes like it emerges as this creature that has has um, formed from these like complex of proteins. Like uh, that's uh, that's an example that I've I've always found very intriguing, and uh, if you guys have some thoughts on it, I'd, I'd love to hear it. Um, oh, sorry, I was typing in the uh, chat there. Um, so uh, you were talking about the emergence of like abiogenesis, the emergence of life. Yes, and uh, hasn't it been like uh, it's been discussed by different eras of philosophical thought? Like there's vitalists, there's the mechanists. I'm not sure if I'm getting <clears throat> those exact terms right, but um, the fact that it's been such a con contentious debate. Like philosophically, I find very interesting. 
and it's uh, uh, related to the idea of emergence as we've we're yeah talking about. for sure i mean it's a it's a case of emergence with a um a lot of ideological consequences for a lot of people <laughs> yeah so I, I believe um it's, it's a bit more of a complicated example of emergence but i believe it's much more uh more yeah um it lends itself to much more fruitful discussion well, one, one thing, one thing that's interesting about life is that it only emerged once. You know, so it, it, it in in evolution, like for instance, the eye emerged duff, different times with respect to different species. And like so a convergent evolution. Uh, there, there's. There's yeah, there's multiple emergences of the eye within evolution, but life itself, as far as they know, only ever emerged once. Seems to me like that's a tough proposition to really. I mean, yeah, how do they really? Uh, you know, in start? the Middle Ages, they would say that if you would hide the thirty socks into the barn. Mices would arise from there, so it's 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 interesting to like you know pit uh, the metaphysics of Middle Ages versus the uh, the metaphysics of modernity with the linear you know kind of quasi mechanical uh, formation of life. Uh huh. Uh huh. Although the thing is that we are almost now, I don't know, kind of just not doing too much new in the way we understand some things we're just kind of claiming that our metaphysics doesn't have a hole in it <laughs> the way we used to patch it up with like angels on pinheads and stuff see that it's interesting that the it's kind of like there's there's things that emerge multiple times and then there's things that emerge only once so like for instance the big bang is an example you know i mean we don't know if there's other big bangs in, in the multiverse but we only know of one, right? And then you've got the whole universe, and uh, we don't know what's going on everywhere else. Where, you know, people kind of assume there must well, be that's life. That's the thing that, so this is this is actually getting at the same uh, trouble I was having with how we could know that like life only emerged once. It seems to me like we don't have the you know uh, proper recordings to know what happened. Like the Big Bang kind of erased everything. All you know. Unless you, so like, yeah, Roger Penrose thinks you might be able to see some like uh, structures of like the pre-Big Bang and the Big Bang, but most other people don't think that. It's kind of thought to be like a sort of, you know, a, a reset button if there was even something going on before then, yeah. right? And uh, I think the same thing is kind of, for me, uh, seems to me like that's the problem with the emergence of life is we don't have the record of like maybe it did happen multiple times and could have gotten you know the records of that got erased well you know that's one of the reasons that you know uh we're so interested in uh exploring the solar system is that you know what mm -hmm. we're hoping is that we're going to find some other kind of life out there somewhere and yeah. then we would know that it's life really it's really interesting. If you like read these people's theories, they make it sound really plausible that there's like life living in like spherical vesicle form in the gas clouds of Venus or whatever, you know, they've really thought about this stuff and thought about how it's plausible. <laughs> yeah. So, but, but I think a, a, an interesting thing to think about is what's the difference between the things that we knew only 
appeared once and the things that we appeared multiple times. So like, for instance, language. Did language yes. appear just once or did it appear multiple times? You know, like, for instance, the Neanderthal, did they speak, for instance? I mean, I think we know now the answer to that question, that language has appeared in multiple species even, right? Uh, dolphins, for instance? Yeah, to a different intensity. Yeah. Are you talking about... In a different register, right? What, what are the different species you're talking about? I was thinking of, like, dolphins communicating through sound waves in the... Uh, they make these like sound cones to communicate. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, if we could understand, <laughs> if we could understand that as language, that would be amazing. Uh, our comrades in the sea. Have you have you read Bryn? Uh, David, I think his name's David Bryn. Science fiction about the dolphins. No, I haven't. I, I would recommend that. That's yeah. really good. Is that B R Y N? No, B R I N. B R I N. B R I N. Gotcha. He, he writes. He writes about uh, the the idea that uh, you know we, we've achieved consciousness, and then one of our things is to give consciousness to you know language and so forth to other creatures. Mm-hmm. And, and the, anyway, it's a really interesting take on this. But but I'm just talking about human. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think about. Um, you know, whether human language arose once or multiple times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, there's a guy named Gan who, who, who writes about this, which is, uh, I found his work very interesting. I mean, to me, that's sort of a question of like, when on the historical scene language arose, did it arise when humanity was one community, or after that, did it have to arise in multiple communities? Yeah. Or did did it only arise in one, and then they killed the others? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's probably what happened, if we're being honest. That's probably what humans did. Well, well um, I would I would suggest something. Let's go back to the the um, the idea or the reality of the egg that you know structures itself into a bird, a chicken, or a dinosaur, or whatever, because mm-hmm. it, it gives mm-hmm. rise to different forms. Um, right. But from, from a Deleuzian perspective, but also from the land... dinosaur? That's great. Okay, sorry. Yeah. But I, no, we can talk about dinosaurs. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, but from a Deleuzian perspective, saying, you know, we've read the text the other day about Plato, and... Uh, how Plato was saying that it was, you know, the the primordial um, entity was the idea, and there were yeah. copies of the idea that were being materialized. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how do we approach the egg? Because one way would to say that there's, you know, there's the idea of the bird that will emerge from the egg. So basically, it's the ideal form that is being um i would i would say fascinating you know it's like a crafted it's like crafted within the egg to become a chicken so basically the chicken i think i have an answer to that question actually of how to approach it yeah okay just let me finish with this to give the explanation yeah so the chicken or the dinosaur would be the copy of the i ideal template 
So it gives rise to this. But Auda's emergence is being understood when the egg is submitted to eat, uh, to warmth, and then how does this process makes it possible for the component of the eggs to bind together and then become something. And then the chicken is not really the ideal form because it's something that is being crafted within the egg first and then in relation to the environment fully becomes chicken form. Yeah. Well, it's also certainly not ideal in the platonic sense because it will not, uh, it's not eternal, right? It's going it to die. Give, and that's yeah, exactly what it has to reproduce. And it doesn't give the perfect chicken, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and right, each. But I think well, this is a good, yeah. this is a good situation to think about those two different kind of theories from the idealist perspective from the, you know, more eminent of the others. Yeah. So maybe we can also bring in the sort of different kind of types of processes that Delanda uh, talks about here, like the sorting and cementing and sedimentation processes. Do you think that'll help us understand this? You mean double articulation? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think it's uh, pertinent here, um, especially when you consider like, uh, um, like with our with our understanding of like modern biology, right? Like we have this idea of proteins and uh, and DNA. DNA like is the common the common metaphor that we use is like DNA is the blueprint for life, right? And this idea of blueprint in something so abstract, like just strands and strands of protein creating these complex entities. Um, how do we understand that from a from like how Delander interprets Deleuze? I mean, to me, I think it's a difference between the blueprint as a literal concrete visual diagram and then the actual imminent abstract diagram of the entire what social process of like forming the building uh excuse me can you uh what sorry what was that i was saying that um so uh Basically, the, the I was trying to explain my understanding of how uh, blueprints and um, actual visual representations, which are static, um, and these are the ideals that we always try to um, conform our thoughts to, uh, or these are different than the actual abstract diagrams or the formation processes that uh, Deleuze and Delanda are talking about. So like literally the difference between a blueprint as an abstract static representation of a building and then the real process of the real social process and the real uh, physical process, you know, socio-physical process of the uh, construction of a building. Yeah, I think you're completely right on this. Mm. Um, yeah, I think uh, I think personally we shouldn't linger so much on this idea of like the blueprint as a metaphor, or whether it's not a metaphor, on what grounds we consider it to be like a pertinent dis uh, descriptor for it. But uh, specifically, like um, just more physically, like how it actually builds into these complex forms. 
But I think it's 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 interesting to keep the blueprint in mind because that's probably how you know from a because structuralism was there at the time. So basically, and idealism was big also. So they were opposing those ideas. So the idea of the blueprint as you know the architect that goes with the blueprint and materializes the forms. Um, I think I think they probably. Um, use this uh this thought to actually construct their countertop of processes right i mean isn't that the i mean to me i am trying to get us away from this language of the blueprint because to me it's static and what deleuze and delanda are trying to talk about is like some sort of blueprint that is also blueprinting its own you know printing right it's a produ producted producing machine Right, the blueprint that it is, yeah. <laughs> like a related, a related concept would be this uh, imminent ontology, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what it is. Um, so we've got. Uh, so I'm looking at the um, like the two-column version of this essay, uh, and so we were talking about this, uh, the double articulation briefly. So. Uh, there's this mention of the double, art, double articulation and then this quote, um, which I think is from, is that a thousand plateaus? Yeah. So it is no longer a question of imposing a form upon a matter, but of elaborating an increasingly rich and consistent material. The better to tap increasingly intense forces. What makes a material increasingly rich is the same as what holds heterogeneities together without their ceasing to be heterogeneous. Um, and so I think I understand this in terms of uh, what we're talking about are um, intense forces are, uh, so we've got intensities are sort of uh, kind of like well, there's both quantities and qualities that are intense. They're like the things that are in the bodies that are uh, part of how we describe the entire body, not part of any you know individual sub-body, right? It's like the temperature of the whole body is the same. There's only one temperature number. It's not like the temperature of each piece. Uh, it's kind yeah, of like, like uh, um, I think uh, it's, uh, it's like this distinction between intensive and extensive forces, right? Intensive and extensive. Yes. Yeah. And so that's what makes things heterogeneous is because the intense, um, the intensities are going to be different in different bodies, and the differences in these intensities are what drive are the forces that drive the flows. The difference is the force, and it causes the flow uh, or drives it. Um, and um, so that's why that's that's why it's the same thing. Uh, the heterogeneity is held in place by these differences that are irreducible, and um, these are also the seeds of this um, unfolding intensification complexification process. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
um, just gathering my thoughts here. Uh, mm-hmm. Hold on a second. Um, so then they do some like, let's see. So given the close connection between intense matter and the concept of the diagrammatic, which I interpret to mean the uh, abstract diagrams, you know, with all this actual and virtual stuff inside of it. Um, So given this close contact, we may seem to have an opposition between stratified and diagram embodying structures. I don't know what that sentence means. And then they start talking about mesh works, and I don't really know what those are. And if you want to address that also, Jan, feel free. Um, mesh works? I'm sorry, uh, Kent, are you going to make a point? Um, well, I was just going to say, uh, you know, this is the, the difference between the arborescent and the rhizome. You know, in uh, thousand plateaus, you know the stratified so, is the ah, is, yeah. is okay. the arborescent because the stratification is like the levels where the bifurcation occurs in the tree or whatever. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. So if we go back to also the concept of emergence, uh, pure form doesn't emerge from nothing. You know, it always emerge from something that is right. So has to be some given yeah. context. So, and uh, Tim Ingold, uh, an anthropologist, actually has a really poetic way of um, talking about this. So he's saying that, for example, a life is a bundle of lines. So uh, an individual life is just lines uh, entangled together, a meshwork. So basically, all those lines. They are entangling with one another, and they give rise to an unfolding, a, f- a form of, yeah, unfolding, I think it is in English. So the meshwork is actually the produce substract, but is also the producing substract of the forms to come. So the meshwork is something that is creative, but also being created. In the process, who, uh, who came up with this concept of the meshwork? Uh, I, I think it's. I don't know how it is in French. Because um, uh, what would it be? I, I, would need, I would need to uh, see. I, think I don't know. If... I have a point to make about uh, the meshwork. Yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, I put in the Delanda chat. Um, uh, something Manuel Delander wrote about the geology of morals, about double articulation, and uh, this idea of stratified, uh, stratified entities and um, non-stratified entities. And um, the way he would describe meshworks is like, imagine like a market. Imagine the market in its purest sense, where it's all horizontal exchange and there's no, there are no um, entities that are hoarding monopolies or restricting the flow of goods and services. Like, yeah. um, like he considers that as a type of meshwork because it's a horizontal, it's a hor- it's a place where horizontal exchange happens, uh-huh. and so, and so, um, it's contrasted with this idea of um more stratified entities like something like the state or like a governmental system, right? 
where instead of horizontal exchanges, you're having like these vertical integrations. Oh, okay. I see. Okay, that makes and, a lot more um, sense to me now. Uh -huh. uh, these, so diagram embodying structures are always within a single plane, right? Yeah, I believe so. And um, uh, this this uh, this this diagram for like meshworks or stratified entities, like they go beyond just social structures. Um, like he, Bedeland also goes on to list like certain types of like rocks that form as mesh as meshworks and rocks that form as um, as stratified entities. Like there's sandstone that happens by layers, right? And then there's yeah. something that happens as crystallization. So uh, that's, that's I, I, under, I think I understand this double articulation now. So it's this difference between the stratifying and the um, diagrammatic thingy, bringing things back to the plane of consistency processes. So you, first you stratify and see the different levels, and then you have to bring things back to a single diagrammatic plane. I think that's the double articulation here. Does that make sense? Um, uh, for me, I, I like to view like this idea of double articulation as a move from the molecular to the molar, then back to the molecular. Like uh, this idea, in a, this idea that um, right, um, we have like the hylomorphic, the hylomorphic model where it's um, form and form and substance, and there's the hylozoic model where it's. Uh, uh, I'm sorry if this is not something. Uh, relevant no, we've talked about a lot of these things. Uh, no, we've talked about these things on the channel, and I think it's yeah. good to. And it's, I think it's well. it's perfectly relevant because uh, now we have Delanda going back to Deleuze, and when Deleuze are talking about this, they're referring to Simon Don, and how Simon Don was using metallurgy, for example, the composition of metal, to talk to um, to criticize elomorphism. So it's everything is related. I just have to say, metallurgy is like super interesting. Like all the ridiculous different numbers of like phases of alloys is yeah, it's cool stuff. So that being said, you can go <laughs> <laughs> on hylomorphic. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I was just um, saying like uh, double articulation for me is a move from. Is a move from the molecular to the molar, and then from the molar it becomes uh, it becomes molecular again. In in that it's uh, it's always a process of like different nested sets of yeah. becoming. I think like, we're saying I think we're saying the matter. same things actually. I think we're I see, saying the same things actually, and, and that's very useful for us to recognize that these are saying the same things. Is that yes, the move from the molecular to the molar is the move from the initial diagrammatic plane to the stratification, uh, right? The molar stratifies, we, we sort things, we have, uh, you know, uh, some either final state or final cycle or some final description of the, you know, metastable description of the process that we achieve. And um, that's the molar. And then, uh, de-stratifying that, bringing everything back to the plane of consistency and seeing how this is all one diagram, really, with all these new potentialities in it, is this descent back to the molecular. 
I would just like to try to re, uh, reorient ourselves. Um, are we still making a point about double articulation because we're still discussing the egg and emergence, or is this uh, leading to a different point? Um, I was just going from the text more directly right here, trying to understand some things in the text I uh, had trouble with. Oh, all right, all right. But yeah, we did which page and which get here from. Um, so the fourth page and the uh, second column. Okay. With the quote at the top, it is no longer a question. So right underneath that quote is where uh, Delanda introduces Meshworks and uh, introduces the double articulation right before that quote in the uh, bottom of the first column. <laughs> oh, also, like, does anybody have any uh, insight as to why this essay was published in an architecture journal? Uh, architecture has been big onto uh, onto this kind of thinking, and for example, mm -hmm. here in my city, you would only find Delusian within architecture for a little while. Really interesting, cool. Mm -hmm. My sister is an architect. I'll try to teach her about Deleuze so she can become uh, smart and famous. <laughs> Um, <laughs> really not famous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, like a few people know who Frank Gehry is. Um, so, Cactus, do you want to get back to hylomorphic versus hylozoic and how that's connected to uh, double articulation and molar versus molecular? I think this is a this is uh, the point I was just making was a. Uh, um... Just a point made in a, in a thousand plateaus, specifically the uh, year ten thousand BC okay. uh, geology of morals. So just just for just for to orient you, we are not assuming people have read a thousand plateaus because uh, yeah, I, on the server. yeah, yeah, I see. I'm, I'm, yeah, I was just pointing that out as in like uh, I wasn't going to go too deep into it because I think it would detract from like the topic at hand. But at the same time. It's important to take Thousand Plateau into consideration because the concept of uh, assemblage or agencement, this is where it is in its more like uh, developed form. And the lander mm -hmm. has made his whole thinking around the concept of assemblage. So the concept is not into that article, but that's the underlying uh, perspective. So I think you're pointing mm -hmm. directly at the right spot. So I that was in 10,000... Ten thousand BC, uh, um, ge uh, on geology, uh, the geology of morals. Okay. Um, so, uh, the way I've read, I've read uh, that plateau is that, um, say we have like the hylomorphic model, right? It's uh, from substance, and then it's form. It's it uh, form that. Can you just explain out. the difference between hylomorphism and hylozoism uh, briefly? Um, wait, sorry. Uh, I seem to be having a mental block as to exactly what hylozoism is. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. You don't have to then, because you just said that earlier, and it's something that I'm still yeah not clear. Um, 
Yeah. So um, you're talking about hylomorphism and substance and formation? Yeah. Um, this idea that uh, we move from um, there's a double articulation, right? So it's a move from substance to form, and then from form to substance back again. And that's the double in double articulation, where, where say you have, um, where in the hylo, in like the classical like hylomorphic model, like it would just be this idea of like transcendent uh, forms and then just the substances that make them up, right? Uh, here we have this this idea of like emergence, like we we uh, we take into consideration this idea of things are component, things become component parts of larger things, and larger things can be disassembled into their smaller constituent sub substances. So it's from it's from substance to form and form back to substance. It's uh, like um, the way Delanda would, the way Delanda wrote about it in the thing that I sent is uh, when you think about, say, sandstone, right? So sandstone is a collection of particles that have sedimented into layers. So you have the substance, which is the sand, forming the form, which is like the layer. And then that layer, which is a form, becoming substance again, which creates a larger level entity, which is something like, say, a mountain, a mountain of sandstone. So mm -hmm. it's it's all about like this idea of like levels of uh, different levels of uh, different levels of I would say existence. I'm not sure if that's really the right word to use. I think you're right. I think you're right that there's a sort of expression. Um, yeah. Yeah, like it's all it's all a process. I think that's the key word here. It's about the process of things constituate um, being constituted by other things. So instead of like a strict model of like there's forms for every specific discrete thing where identity takes precedence over difference, now it's difference that creates identity. Right, right. Um, and I think uh, there's a way in which um, not only does the double articulation proceed in the um, in the series fashion that you describe, but it also uh, applies in a simultaneous fashion where, um, right, you can always go from the sandstone up to the mountain or back down to the sand. Uh, and we don't really know where the ground is that you maybe can't, <laughs> right, get underneath if there is such a ground. So we always kind of want to be considering that both of those processes are possible. Oh yeah, and I want to uh, bring in from the, in the chat we got that um, non-manifest pointed out that hylozoism is the uh, philosophy of matter being living. Um, so then I'm in to make this connected back to the double articulation. It seems to me that uh, so hylomorphism is the uh, molecular to the molar process where the morphology occurs and then the hylozoism is the return back to the molecular where we break things apart again and see how these are really kind of living entities interacting with each other in their own problematic diagrammatic imminent process yeah yes uh that was the point that i should have remembered yeah <laughs> that's okay 
That's why we're here. That's why there's eight of us here to help each other through this. Uh, can I just say, I, I, I just realized that everybody speaking right now is an admin, and I'm just this newbie who I'm not sure if I'm being disruptive or not. I'm sorry. No, you're not being disruptive. The, the whole point of this is to get more conversation than just between us admins. I see. I see. I'm enjoying myself quite a lot, and I'm yeah. learning. I'm learning. We hope, so. we hope that everybody is enjoying themselves, if, even if you're just listening. Uh, but please feel free to get on the voice chat yeah. and interrupt and our dumbasses. And everybody's getting something. For example, I'm an yeah. anthropologist. So like when you were talking about more technical or like physics, I'm just like, oh, God, OK, I need to understand that. So like, yeah, yeah. And for me, I'm trying to like take your social anthropo anthropological, you know, ridiculous amount of like theoretical knowledge and development that's been going on that like no physicist knows about and trying to. Yeah. Okay. So, how can I understand this in terms of like my skill set and my knowledges of like quantitative, you know, analytic things? Well, this, I think this that's is what Delanda De De is why, doing himself, right? This is why Delanda is so yeah. interesting, is because he's bridging this gap. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely and resonate the, with that. It's productive in both directions. Yeah. Um. I've got a friend that's a uh, English professor in uh, Boston, and she was telling me once about how she was trying to like set up a sort of interdisciplinary thing with some of the science, the STEM folks at her university, and like they just did not get that it would be like a thing that would have to be productive for like both parties, for like the humanities people to want to participate. Like they're not want to just like, you know, be little slaves to like the STEM folks. <laughs> And like that's just to me like an absurd and like uh, I don't know willfully ignorant view of like your own academic peers. Well, like, the, my, the problem is me. the problem is that what happens in a lot of physics is such immersion into the details of the phenomena, whatever that phenomena is, that there's no consideration of the broader implications. Right. And so, uh, arborescent, too many trees, not enough forest, not enough. And, and, and you know, uh, this is the interesting thing, which is that Zizek, um, you know, what I really like about him is analysis, but there, but in coming from anti Oedipus, I don't see much cultural analysis happening, but. What is very productive is the uh, the Delandic type interpretation in terms of mathematics and physics. It's incredibly it's incredibly productive. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I'd like to point out. I mean, I brought this up uh, earlier, uh, much earlier. Like the Ilya Prigogine and Isabel Stengers mm -hmm. do amazing work to bridge like these very technical. Uh, very technical physics and mathematics, and then they poured it into like an understanding of philosophy and like a general understanding of like the universe and how how like yeah. it surrounds and affects us. Uh, yes. that's, that's you know it's, uh, another, and I think it's pertinent here because like um, Delanda take uh, has read uh, Prigogine and also like follows in that in that practice. That makes sense. Um, if if I can add just a little thing, um, 
delusion thought is you know unitary in the sense that it's 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 relating to um to Spinoza. So elozoism, which I didn't know the term before, and you know, I'm looking uh, looking at different definition of it. Uh it seems to be in line saying that it it encompasses both the the human and non non human to one thing that is common which is life. So it's like a, a unitarian kind of way of seeing all the different forms from coming from the same stem. So that would that would make total sense into the rest of the philosophy. Um yeah. It right, it's unifying and that's I think what the double articulation that we've been talking about is trying to get is the how you get back to unifying things. How you understand both emergence and reduction as part of one uh Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Reality. That, that's what you know. That's why um, this this kind of thought is difficult to get into anthropology, because there's always human exceptionalism, and you know we're focusing on humans, on consciousnesses, and stuff like this. And it's really difficult for them when I bring that you know the curb cut is part of your life. The curb cut crafts you, and it's part of you. And there's not much difference between the body and the curb cut. And they're like, oh my god, did you just go there? But I think that. This this kind of thought leads us there into saying that everything is with everything else and there's no priority really. So it, it challenges yeah. a lot of the can I read a, Can I read a quote from the um, Prigogine and Stenger's book, uh, the very end of it? Spoiler alert, does anybody not want to hear uh, this? Which, which book is this? Order Out of Chaos. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, this, like, I think this is directly talking about what we're just talking about right now. Uh, so spoiler alert in case you don't want to have the very last paragraphs of the book read to you right now Um, it's quite remarkable that we are at a moment both of profound change in the scientific concept of nature and of the structure of human society as a result of the demographic explosion as a result there is a need for new relations between man and nature and between man and man we can no longer accept the old a priori distinction between scientific and ethical values. This was possible at a time when the external world and in our internal world appeared to conflict, to be nearly orthogonal. Today we know that time is a construction and therefore carries an ethical responsibility. The ideas to which we have devoted much space in this book, the ideas of instability, of fluctuation, diffuse into the social sciences. We know now that societies are immensely complex systems involving a potentially enormous number of bifurcations exemplified by the variety of cultures that have evolved in the relatively short span of human history. We know that such systems are highly sensitive to fluctuations. This leads both to hope and a threat. Hope since even small fluctuations may grow and change the overall structure. As a result, individual activity is not doomed to insignificance. On the other hand, this is also a threat since in our universe, the security of stable, permanent rules seems gone forever. We are living in a dangerous and uncertain world that inspires no blind confidence, but perhaps only the same feeling of qualified hope that some Talmudic texts appear to have attributed to the God of Genesis. 26 attempts preceded the present Genesis, all of which were destined to fail. The world of man has arisen out of the chaotic heart of the preceding debris. He is too exposed to the risk of failure and the return to nothing. Let's hope it works. Hallway Sheyabod exclaimed God as he created the word and this hope 
which has accompanied all the subsequent history of the world and mankind has emphasized right from the outset that this history is branded with the mark of radical uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of argument that I'm making into my work, saying that there was mobility. I'm working for the guys that don't know me. I'm working on the mobility experience of disabled people from a, a little delusion perspective. And uh, what I'm saying is that the assemblage that actually uh, renders possible the mobility of people can be challenged and is um, is really unstable, even if it looks stable with, you know, accessible design and universal design and all that stuff. And I was about to work on the same kind of question in New York City, and I arrived in New York at the end of February, and then just a little thing entered the assemblage called COVID-19. So this whole structure is has been blown out. And so, so it's, mm -hmm. it's really interesting to have this kind of thought that says it's fragile. You know, the assemblage yeah. are not perpetual. They can fall. Stuff will go bad. And yeah. it's an, quite an example of an event that changes the assemblage. I think it's really interesting to kind of tie this back to, um, I think, part of where we started, which was desire upwelling like this desire of nature to find new possibilities uh, gets realized in a virus. And now it's like, you know, <laughs> infecting the host body, upwelling. Yeah, so it's it's really interesting because to actually see COVID-19 into that manner, because, you know, if we go from like um, a Gillian form of uh, temporality in society saying, you know, there's the synthesis, antithesis, uh, there's the thesis, the antithesis, and then the synthesis, and everything is linear to, like, uh, you know, go to a perfect form. Um, you can see it with an event, how... It challenged that same idea that something that seems to be going somewhere can be completely disrupted and go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The butterfly effect. I like the idea of Zizek, where he talks a little about the little piece of the reel, where he says it's like a grain of sand in a mm -hmm. uh, in a machine that's a smooth running machine mm -hmm. that brings mm -hmm. the machine to a stop mm -hmm. and and that's like a perfect analogy for this covid-19 because it's it's a it's a tiny little invisible thing more than a grain of sand system to a stop <laughs> much more than a grain of sand this isn't very this isn't very related to the landa but um have you guys read any paul virilio um, I have not yet, but I'm actually going to be reading that this week to discuss on Saturday. Ah, oh, nice, nice. Because uh, um, I, was, I was just reading him, and then, like, this idea of speed, right? And then, um, like, a society that's geared towards speed doesn't know how to slow down. So it feels that slowing down is like a throttling effect, kind of like when you stop suddenly uh, in a car and the seatbelt just, you know, the inertia just pushes you into the seatbelt. <laughs> That actually explains accelerationism to me. But it also explained the molar and the molecular because, you know, how the intensity is being put in motion and the motion actually, you know, gives the possibilities to come. And when you stop all the intensities, they try to find inertia. So, you know, you just crash into the, uh, the dash. 
Mm-hmm. But that's the thing with society also. Like, there's different intensity at work in a specific assemblage, but if you disrupt them, they will try to f- they will try and they will try to find an expression. And so basically, they're solving their own problems, but solving their problems is not solving yours. So it's a lot. There's a lot of things that is happening right now, and the the whole capitalist system is just it's just a train wreck at this moment. And you know we're gonna see the effect of it all uh, for many, many, many. Yes. What happens to a dream deferred? Anybody have the answer? No. I just have a. Just this, uh, this, just, just a random thought about like this entire COVID thing. It feels like a, it feels like, um, like it's supposed to be an event, right? But then it's like an event where nothing happens. So it's like this glacial chaos that's like, it's like feels like nothing is happening, but precisely because nothing's happening, that's why it's chaotic. But there's a lot of things happening. It's it's a redirection of the fl- the flux, you know. It's uh, the the flux is changing. There's a, for example, I'm working on uh, on the ontologies of uh, mobility and immobility, and how uh, stopping people just just creates. You know, it's like the grain of sand in the machine does this kind of same thing. The machine is just going awire. People are dying everywhere. There's reconfiguration in elderly people's homes. Uh, we're trying to like redirect the flow of merchandise create stuff into a different manner so that there's a lot of stuff that is happening right now it's like it's it's like we've you know we 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 we, uh, we change track for the train but the train is still going I see I see I was I was mainly referring the train is always going like, <laughs> right like uh, like in and as like an economic model like things are slowing down economically but yeah I, I see what you mean like there there are still things happening and you can't like just kind of brush those away yeah i was just uh, i was just i was just speaking my thoughts but you know i wasn't not no, but, asserting. but i think it's interesting to speak our thoughts uh, you know because you you are being formed by the system you're in so you're being formed by a certain kind of ontology and philosophy so basically the thoughts that you're having are emergent from that kind of society you're in so basically it's it's interesting to challenge what seems to be innate to us uh with that kind of philosophy because it's really counterintuitive so you know we're like oh the economy is stopping so but just saying the economy as a thing and it is stopping it's because we are into a linear mechanical way of thinking so it's really interesting just to to state that and try to deconstruct it from this perspective. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, thank you for yeah pointing that out. Um, so I just want to interrupt the ongoing discussion to point out that it's 3.53. Uh, I was going to have to leave at, uh, oh, sorry, well, subtract your hours from that for Pacific time. But anyways, I'm going to have to leave at uh, around the top of the hour. and. We didn't get to discuss uh, the intro to intensive science and virtual philosophy at all today. Um, so I guess I just wanted to offer people the chance to ask questions about that right now, uh, if they had questions on it, but we'll actually get to discuss that in full next time. And actually maybe now is a good time to talk about what we're going to read for next time. How much do people think they can read of uh, intensive science and virtual philosophy in a week? Um, yeah.
I, I think we ought to talk about the, the introduction next time. That will give me a chance to read. Yeah, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. We'll actually talk about it next time, but if anybody had questions they want to ask to help themselves keep reading, now would be a good time to do that. But um, the main point of us for us to talk about is how much to read for next time. And um, into the channel that we have for the lander, uh, feel free to propose some topics or some, uh, some ways that we're going to be uh, approaching uh, the content. So like, let's, let's make this collective way more than it is into the other channels. So yes. I, I, would like, I would like to experiment with it. Let's be laboured. Yes. Um, um, Doug, uh, yeah. when, what, when will you be leaving the chat? Um, I don't have a particular time. I just know I'll have to leave by like a little after four, so I want to end it and get the bot closed and everything uh, by then. Uh, I would just like to say a thank you for being very uh, accommodating. Uh, I'm, oh. This is my first time speaking up in this uh, uh, DNG uh, server, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I was trying my best not to be disruptive of anything, but uh, I feel I felt like I kind of got us going on dif a different track to where we were supposed to like follow the book. I'm sorry, I was yeah. not aware of that. Oh no, we weren't supposed to follow the book. I mean, uh, that's just a guideline; it's not a rule. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to thank like you. Like we were saying before about people um, talk speaking your thoughts. You know, saying your thoughts like, yeah, the this is a space for you to like just say things and don't think so hard about how you're saying them. You know, just like get it out and then work on it. You know, that's 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 the process you have to do. You got to fail first, and then keep failing, and eventually people will stop noticing that you're failing, and that's all that happens. <laughs> but that's, that, that's another thing too because yeah, I, this is something that I talked with Doug before there's a difference between philosophy and philology you know do you do you want to be in here to be studying Deleuze as you're studying the Bible or do you want to do something with Deleuze do you want to you know be able to use those ideas to go in the world and change the world I prefer this version so let's we can we can work in that manner also um, uh, I think I might as well like uh, uh, say like my preoccupation with Deleuze. It's like uh, right now uh, I'm actually a, a sociology and uh, anthropology student, and uh, I, I study like I want to study like ethnomusicology, and like I, Deleuze's Sweet. ideas of like difference and like these chaotic forces being distilled into like structuration. And all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I, find that I saw very... a uh, paper once written about like, yeah, using the concept of the rhizome to describe like the process of differentiation of genres in music. Try to find that and send you a link to that. Oh, thank you. That would be very cool. Yeah, um, and then you can actually, uh, you know, see it into the assemblage uh, theory also, and uh, see how the music is linked to a specific ecology of social technical uh, elements. Yes, yeah. It's like uh, not just viewing music as a formal thing, but uh, rather as a as assemblage of disparate parts coming together, and it's like it's a happening, it's an event. Alternalities are just a bunch of stuff hanging out together. Um, I'm sorry if I'm if I'll be treading like um like 
I, this is old ground, and we're not treading anything. No, but, go ahead. Uh, Stop apologizing. Okay. okay. Request. Uh, Stop apologizing. I would like. I would. I would like to ask you guys what all of your preoccupations with Deleuze are. Like, um, why are you in the server? Just you know. Uh, so if you guys already know each other, you guys are probably like, you know, like this is just so I get a an idea of what you guys are into. Because yeah, I'd like yeah, to like yeah. no, know you no, guys. Okay. Okay, shut up. Let us talk. Let's <laughs> right, right. answer your question, man. Stop apologizing. Um, so yeah, my preoccupation is I'm coming from. Uh, I'm a grad student in physics right now, finishing up my PhD, and I've spent like oh, the wow. last two years or so trying to like wrap my head around like what metaphysics is, <laughs> and uh, I've made my way to Dulles and Guattari and. Um, to me, it speaks to me on like a uh, scientific, meta-scientific, political level, and just rings uh, resonates, and you know actually states things that I've tried to think in a much clearer way, and then takes them to the next end steps. Um, in terms of like science as an as a social institution, have you read uh, anything of uh, about nomadology? No, I haven't. The only kind of um, social theory, critical science stuff I've read is like uh, feminist theory, uh, talking about science. I see. I see. Um, I'll, I'm I'm looking forward to you like encountering nomadology because that's when they talk about like yeah. um, royal science versus minor science, and uh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. There's definitely about, a tradition of minor science. I can point out a few contemporary fig- figures. <laughs> So uh, me, uh, uh, I just finished a PhD in anthropology on the mobility experience of disabled people. And um, I have a thing against identity and I have a thing against structure. Um, And, you know, I'm also within disability um, studies. And as you know, into all the humanities, we're pretty strong on the ism, you know, ableism creates this sexism creates that i'm not interested in those questions at all what i was interested in was to actually follow people and see how their existence unfold in the contact with their environment so basically how they are finding affordances within the environment and they're developing habits into their habitat so basically i was uh, mostly interested into the question of dwelling uh, to begin with, and how you dwell into an environment um, according to what the environment gives you. So basically, how you know the affordances of the environment, you are able to connect with your own potential and capacities or abilities. I don't know how you say it in English. Um, and then it, it it all arose. I was just like, I need more. <laughs> I need more. Uh, I need more levels to understand all of this. So I got more. I, I knew Deleuze before, but like, I got back to Deleuze and I got this assemblage theory into it to see how people are assembling, how the human and the non-human are participating in two forms of life. So how the city actually um, creates. Uh, the individual patterns of mobility, but how those patterns are creating the person, but how the person is participating also in crafting the city. So that's my old dissertation. I see. That's a very refreshing take. And I, I'm really like, I'm really rooting for you to, you know, 
uh, create like a very nice work. I try, I try. I don't know. I don't know what it's gonna give, but <laughs> I try to do some stuff with it. Well, instead of uh, mobility, maybe you need to now focus on immobility since we're all immobile. That's exactly what I'm doing with my post PhD. How the uh, the ontology of sedentarity, the ontology of immobility, has been uh, emerging from this sharp. Uh, differentiation within the assemblage and what's interesting right now is that the situation well you know this is I'm going into the moral what you're feeling right now is what the disabled people feel most of the time you know like a void you're kind of stuck somewhere you cannot go anywhere everything is castrated and castrating I mean we can tie this back to uh, the Delanda article like we're talking about a topological point a you know a singularity attractor in phase space that is you know all of us are uh being thrust to this point of uh sedentaryism but then the and people the who, on us too. Yeah, and then the people who are already struggling uh with accessing different things they are even in the worse posture so you know the the whole the whole ableist um thing is still present right. you know it, but it's crafted yeah, it's into like, a different huh. matter right now and, you know, they were already at this point and now we're crushing them in we're all closing in and forming yeah. the, some so, rigid you know, structure this has only been a month so i don't want to assume many things i will talk to people i will get into their lives and see what's going on but i don't think it's a uh, walk in the park you you don't think it's what it's a walk in the park for there for them. Oh, yeah. So that's like brand new. I'm like I haven't yeah. configured the theory because you know, like I had like a specific set of ideas until the end of February, and then you know everything shattered, and I'm just like, fuck, what am I gonna do with that? Yeah. Well, it's kind of like everyone's been disabled. Like you, yeah, like you, yeah, in, like in you disable something, like you disable something in a machine. Yeah, but like the, uh, the 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 parts that were um, already left over, they're even more left over. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh sure. I, I don't want to make. I don't want to sound negative, but. And then you know, there's a Can whole thing about that? state of exception about letting the vulnerable and the elderly people die, to maintain oh, oh, the system. Yeah. So that's another thing going on, you know, like people are really threatened. We should see this, though. See this, like they are trying. This is what fascism does is it tries to uh, artificially produce this morphogenetic process. Right. This is what social Darwinism is. It's trying to artificially produce this morphogenetic process of society by literally killing people, (laughs) excising them from society. And, you know, it's a basic utilitarian perspective, you know. Oh, some people will die. It's fine. Oh, well, the statistics are pretty low. And, you know, if we sacrifice them, and uh, the rest will live. It's, it's, it's kind of scary what's happening right now. It's, well, the, the thing is that the, the people who say this, you know, they don't realize that what the impact of two million people dying mm-hmm. on the society would be. It would be this gigantic impact. Yeah, but they're thinking that those people are disposable. So they're right, but they're, they're also they, thinking that they're also thinking that the medical system is disposable. 
Honestly, you know, like, I, I wonder if sometimes if these people aren't so wrapped up in their, like, ideology that, like, they don't even see other people as people. It's just pure, you know, um, it's just spectacle, image on the spectacle for them. Yeah. And, you know, you always see, uh, as Eidegger said, you always see uh, others as mid-Dasseins, not as Dasseins, in the sense that you don't see them as people, but only as functions for you. So mm-hmm. the people that are not there, since they don't, don't even know. have a function I, I, for, for you, they're not people. <laughs> yeah? I refuse to let Heidegger speak for me. No, I mean, <laughs> you don't have to. But like he has interesting thoughts, especially yeah, into yeah. that realm, because I think he's a right. little concerned with all that. I'll listen to him. I just don't let him speak for me. <laughs> this uh, this reminds me of uh, like the scary this the scary development of like accelerationism, the kind of like the kind of like really persistent nihilism that that like ideology pervades. Like, oh, the only way through capitalism, the only way out of capitalism is through it, and it's like, so we have to like just take all of this like all of these like atrocities like just as they come. It's insane! And oh my god, yeah. it's so insane! Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm actually, if you put it into like a simple thing, we're all driving in a bus right now. And <laughs> Doug's driving, and there's a wall, and we're like, maybe we should turn. Doug is like, no, fuck this, let's accelerate. It's <laughs> like, what? Uh, here, let me write. Let me read you my journal entry on accelerationists that I wrote last night. Accelerationists oh, sure, are sure. assholes. They're assholes. The world is already fast enough and brutal enough. Uh, I think that they're like Hegel's perfect souls. Nothing's ever good enough and might as well be nothing in comparison to their perfection. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, and that's probably why he's been adopted by the right. Yeah. Awesome. You know, yeah. you know, I think I think this uh I mean you guys are admins. Um I think it would actually be We're just jokers who like got here in the ground floor. We're not special, don't worry. Yeah, I know, but you guys have like the executive like decisions of like what to do with the server and uh, and what and whatnot. Like, um, <laughs> I, I think uh, I think you you're putting too much. Uh, you know, uh, we just happened to turn up and say we wanted to try to be admins. All right, all right. Well, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, also we want more admins. Let's. I'm going to put this on the recording. I make sure this on the recording. We've got like over probably 1,300 subscribers to the server now. We need more mods and admins. Please volunteer if you want to. There's a volunteer uh, chat channel in uh, one of the categories, I think, in the first category. Um, yeah. All Anyways. right. I mean, I was, I was just making the point, like, uh, um, like the very, like, the very, like, seed of, of accelerationism, I feel, was, like, planted with anti-Oedipus. Like, people always point to anti-Oedipus and, like, this very specific, like, line in there um like when they quote Nietzsche like we have the truth is we haven't seen enough like uh we haven't seen anything yet yeah I think that was the quote and uh I don't know like would you guys be open to like um having like a channel for like accelerationism or like just discussing like that general topic not so much saying that we support that you know that ideology but it is pertinent I, to the reason. I, 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 think, I, I would, would, would kind of like this because it would accelerate yeah. this uh, thing. I can suggest that uh, Kent has a whole server of like continental philosophy stuff. I think that would uh, be a good place to house that. Does that sound uh, plausible? Yeah, yeah, no, that yeah. would be a good thing to put there. Um, I but I would like to see what it attracts, though. 
Just yeah, to, so yeah, just we're, to it's going to take know, some like, head moderation. <laughs> yeah, like, accelerationism has, like, the wildest figures, like, you know, backing it up. Like, like yeah. you have Nick Land, who's, like, this crypto-fascist and has all these, like, weird, like, neo-racist sort of stuff going on in his work. And then you have, like, um, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting, like, seeing how accelerationism is, like, this... It's this online phenomena more than it is like a print phenomena. So it's like I mean, I just don't get it. Like to me, like you said that quote from Andy Oedipus, and it's just like obvious to me that like they're not saying that's like a good or uh, thing that we should try to do. They're just saying like that's what's gonna happen because they think you know that's just what they think is gonna happen. Like <clears throat> kind of just stating an opinion there. Yeah, but politically, think, it's being used on both sides as well. You know, on, on yeah, the left, it was there. Let's 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 push capitalism. But is it, breaks? You know. Oh, right. I, I, I don't understand left about accelerationism. Okay, yeah, go Ken. The um, you know, this is a theme that I'm interested in with respect to the structure of the Western worldview. Is this idea of uh, intensification of nihilism? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I uh, kind of realized at one point was that there's this kind of dialectic between nihilism and emergence. Yes, what's black is green, which is so, fucking so terrible. It, the asshole Kekistan folks. Took so it, in order to down. see the emergent thing occur, you have to have the nihilistic background, which are all kinds of changes that are not emergent changes. And, and and like the difference and, and so and so then when you have, get a genuine emergence, you mean like self annihilating things? Then you see it on the background of all of the nihilism. Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm. like an example of uh, I think that's exactly what Deleuze is talking about with like difference, right? I mean, this is a big theme in in Deleuze and Guattari. That's why you know it's interesting. Yeah. But 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 part of this intensification of nihilism is the idea that uh, that the emergent event occurs, and then uh, everyone says like when when the internet came along, oh this is going to solve all of our problems, right? And then and then we start getting into the problems of the new emergent paradigm, which is like you know the pornography and the viruses and the you know, uh, all of the things that happen on the internet that are negative. And then you realize, oh no, things got worse. You know, the emergent thing happened. We thought everything was going to be great, but actually things got worse. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the work where I, uh, that I was reading when I realized this was, uh, uh, Jose Arguelles wrote this book called, uh, transformational vision in which he takes the Mayan calendar and he projects it on to the art in the, in the West. And, and basically he shows that, you know, each phase of art history, um, you know, uh, which was a new thing in art history ended up being something that made the situation worse. And then you'd have the new thing that they thought was going to solve those problems. And then that would make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. So I'm back to you. I post a link to um, this uh, short book by um, the collective Claire Fontaine. Uh, Human Strike has already begun in other writings. Um, they're addressing this, uh, you know, how to think of a sort of revolution that doesn't 
bureaucratize and uh, you know rigidify. Um, oh, okay, that'd be interesting. And then, I, and then I, I just like to mention something else. Uh, going back to uh, something we were discussing previously was that um, you know I, I read the I read the uh, the David Smith thing on flows and codes and uh, mm, yeah I'll finally get to that some one of these days very, yeah very I mean soon, it, I found that a fascinating uh, take on what's going on in in anti Oedipus you know basically he's saying that that anti-Oedipus is just applying Keynesian economics to Marxism and Freudianism. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, 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 uh, this way of looking at things is kind of, uh, uh, kind of uh, solidified into this technique called systems dynamics models. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and, and what I was realizing, so, so, so they're they're trying to come up with a plan for reopening California, and I realized that um, system dynamics models is something they need. So I wrote this uh, little article, kind of rationalizing um, the uh, the uh, that they ought to be using a systems dynamics model, and and it seems to me that this is like a a great opportunity to try to apply the Deleuzian and Guattari way of thinking mm -hmm. to this whole problem of how how do you reopen the economy? Mm, I, yeah, no, that's great. Wow. And so it occurred to me that this was kind of like a practical thing that could be a project that um, that would then allow the ideas that are in anti-Oedipus, which are basically, according to Smith, Keynesian ideas, to mm -hmm. be uh, applied to this question. Because, see, the, the whole problem is thrashing, you know, that, that they, they, they open up too soon and then they have to close back down. Open up, close back down. That is mm -hmm. the thing that will destroy the economy. Mm. And so... And so all these people push, that are pushing to reopen too soon, they are the ones that are going to destroy the economy. <laughs> all right. Well, everybody, start uh, placing your uh, – what should you call it? Um, short short sales. Actually, yeah. uh, Mr. Kent Palmer, uh, yeah. I don't think I've heard you introduce yourself. Uh, I'm I'm curious to see what I'm curious to hear what your background is. I'm a uh, software engineer and systems engineer, and um, I uh, I'm retired. But I I've had a back uh, kind of like side project all my all my life uh, studying uh, continental philosophy and uh, especially uh, ontology. I have a sociology PhD and a PhD in systems engineering. Oh, wow. All right. So it's really like this uh, passion project. Guy, right? <laughs> Grandpa Kent. Helping us out. Uh, Cactus, yeah, you want to just add, add help? Okay, Boomer. That's the.
<laughs> <laughs> to your credit, you have never been okay boomered as far as I can't imagine that happening. You're not a you're you're not a boomer in heart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good job with you. Uh Cactus, you wanna introduce yourself? Uh yeah, I, I already briefly introduced myself. Like I'm a I I said I, oh, yeah, I'm okay. a social yeah. Uh well I'm from the Philippines and in the Philippines mm-hmm. Deleuze studies isn't really like a big thing. Like I know certain mm-hmm. people that study Deleuze, but in ter- in terms of like institutions that teach um Deleuze or like uh how widely disseminated Deleuze is in terms in like the different fields that it could be applied in, it's not really that present here. So uh, you know, I have like what uh what do I do? I go to the internet and I try to connect with people like you guys. So nice. That's 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 my background. Uh, yeah. So I'm very thankful for these conversations. Yeah. No, we're happy to have you here. Thank you for uh, contributing. Um, does anybody else have anything they want to say before I tell Craigbot to leave? Anybody who hasn't spoken yet at all want to say something? Even just introduce themselves and say, yeah, you know, anything. Yes, I hope you can get those mic issues fixed, oh, Freen. Great uh, to finally uh, hear from you. Uh, Freen, uh, the conference in Naga, yeah, uh, that's in that's in the south. Uh, I'm I haven't been there, and I was I heard about it. I know friends who were there, and I'm actually friends with the people who organized it, but I was not able to attend. Oh, are you also from the Philippines, Freen? <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to end the recording now. Uh, Thank you guys so much for being here and contributing and helping us all learn from and with each other. Is the next one going to be on next Wednesday? Yes, it'll be next Wednesday. Oh, yeah, we didn't get to... um, Yeah, I'm going to end the recording right now, and then we can talk about uh, what we'll read next.